If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the February 10th, 2020 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender radio show, now including the queer and intersex communities in our mission statement and proudly promoting our allies. Hello, I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I'm Chloe Corcoran. Tonight... Although New York claims the gay rights movement started at Stonewall in 1969, a lesser-known event in L.A. two years earlier at the Black Cat Tavern in the Silver Lake neighborhood of L.A. was the site of what was, at the time, the largest documented gay and lesbian civil rights demonstration in the nation, leading many to recognize it as the birthplace of a worldwide movement. The demonstration took place on February 11, 1967, in response to a New Year's Eve police raid at the popular gay bar weeks before. Hundreds gathered outside the bar in peaceful protests of police brutality and discriminatory laws and procedures. Tonight, we devote our entire show to the remembrance of those events 52 years ago this week and revisit Abby D's conversation with Alexei Romanov, who, now 83, is the last surviving organizer of personal rights in defense and education also known as Pride, one of the groups that helped stage the 1967 stand. But first, we have a couple of minutes from Steve Pride in 2017 at the 50-year celebration outside the Black Cat Tavern. Hey, this reminds me of something. (laughs) You know, I didn't organize tonight's event, but I did organize another event 50 years ago, on this night. What do we want? Justice! When do we want it? Now! What do we want? Justice! When do we want it? Now! The spirit is still here. And I'm depending on all of you to go on and carry this forward, because tonight, a police officer came over, shook my hand, and said, thank you. There are people who will support us and people who will go against us. But we have to do is stay united. And let me hear you. I can't hear you. I still can't hear you. 
Thank you. It's nice to be acknowledged, but I didn't do it to be acknowledged. What I did it for was my own freedom and your freedom and the people I learned from as a young person are still here in spirit because you're carrying their spirit. Let me hear you. I hope to be here for the 75th. And now Abby Dees in conversation with Alexei Romanov. Before Stonewall, LGBT people were indeed fighting for their rights. And on February 11, 1967, at the Black Cat Tavern in Silver Lake, a gay-friendly neighborhood in Los Angeles, Alexei Romanov helped organize the first large gay rights protest on record. But you could say that this story begins almost three decades earlier in New York City. My name is Alexei Boris Romanov. And you know the Bryant Park in New York? That used to be a gay hangout way back then. My mother was in show business, and there was a group of about nine of us. And we were kids. I was 14. I think it went up to about 15 and down to about nine years or 10 years old. We would hang out in Bryant Park, and we called ourselves the Trunkers because we were born in a trunk, theater term. So we called ourselves the Trunkers. And there was a man, to this day I don't know his name, but he changed my life. I called him Mother Brian. We all called him Mother Brian because that was kind of a term of endearment for a gay man. He was 86 at that time. He would come and tell us what it was like when he was 18 years old in 1890 to be a gay man. He would talk to us and then he would go for one meal whenever he came over down to Horn and Hart's Automat down on 42nd Street. And he would sit there and talk to us and tell us about things. And one day there was about six of us sitting there with him. We would have a Coke or a soda. And he said, he says, when you're my age and ready to leave this earth, if you haven't left your community in a better place than you found it, and the world as a whole, you haven't lived. And it, it just touched my heart. It absolutely touched my heart. Now, all of us didn't get what he was saying. And I looked at him. It said something to me that if we don't have our rights and if we don't do something about it, we haven't lived. So that has been a key to what changed my life at 14, Mother Brian. And to this day, I don't know his name, but I love him. I would like you to tell me a story of the early hours of the morning, January 1st, 1967. Okay. It was New Year's Eve. I have to preface this with the fact that there had been somewhat of a police truce for the past two years. Reagan had taken office that night, New Year's Eve, as governor of California. Seems that the truce had broken between the police, and they raided... I think it was four bars that night. One of the bars was the New Faces. Another bar, I believe, was the Ram's Head Inn. 
and another bar was the little cave and then the black cat. The two most important ones are the black cat and the new faces because that raid was very violent. I was part owner in the new faces, but I had already sold my share to my partner about five months before. I helped open the bar up. I was working at another bar called The High Spot. And Leroy, which is a woman, uh, was my partner, the owner. Now, no bars had windows to the open because we had to be closeted and we had to block off the general public from looking in. Nothing tawdry was going on in those bars. And if it was, it wasn't by choice or anything. It just happened. Those bars were about getting together with your own community and people you cared about and knew. So at midnight, they played Old Anxiety at the Black Cat. Everybody was there enjoying themselves. And all of a sudden, the police raided the place. They were in there in plain clothes. They were grabbing people. Nobody knew who they were yet. There was no fighting, but the police were beating people in there, beating them down. And the charges that came out of that was lewd conduct, meaning that they had kissed on New Year's Eve for, a, I forget how many seconds longer than was permissible by law. Half a minute or something like that. But anyway, Two people were just coming into the bar as they were beating some of the people. They didn't know what was going on. They ran back out the door. So they ran from the black cat to the new faces because the new faces are on the same side of the street as the black cat, thinking that there was some sanctuary in there with the police behind them. They chased after them. When they went inside, they had said, who's the manager or the owner here? Well, it's New Year's Eve, and Leroy had her gown on. But when they heard the name Leroy, they heard a man's name, Leroy, not L-E-E, -E, last name R-O-Y. And they saw this, what they thought was a cross-dresser in there in a gown, and they grabbed her, and they started beating her and they broke her collarbone. The bartender tried to come across the bar to save his boss because he didn't know what was going on, and they ruptured his spleen. They beat him so bad. Was anybody fighting back? I'm sure people were struggling, but they were trying to get to safety. It wasn't a violent community. The gay community at the time, and still, is a fairly law-abiding community. Especially, I would imagine, on New Year's Eve, people are in a good mood. They're Absolutely. in a good place. Old anxiety just finished playing. People were hugging and kissing. They weren't lewd conduct. What we started doing was we didn't have computers, we didn't have cell phones, but we had phones. And we had a thing that we called a phone tree. That's where I would call 10 people and they would call another 10 people, and those 10 people would call 20 people, and it would spread like that. That's how we got word through the community. It may sound like we were very organized, but we weren't. What was motivating you? Because this wasn't the first time that you would experience a police raid or harassment, and certainly it was nothing new to the community. Why this time? Maybe the amount of injury 
that happened, all the people that ended up in hospitals that was uncalled for because they didn't fight back. They just grabbed people, just like Leroy. I mean, she was an older woman at that time, but they thought she was Leroy, the man, in a gown, and that's all they needed. And that was a violation of law, if she had been a cross-dresser. Yes. Two friends of mine were in the high spot one day, and one of them was standing over his partner. They lived together, and they were talking and laughing with friends. He happened to tip his glass of beer, and some spilled on his partner's chest. So he, instinctively, he took his hand and he brushed the beer off. They were arrested for lewd conduct, and I went to court as moral support for them. In those days, if you were arrested for lewd conduct, there were two charges you could be charged with. There was a major charge, and I think it was 640-something, and then A, and then there was a lesser charge, which was 640-something B. What they were hoping for, that you would plead guilty to 647B because it was a lesser charge and you wouldn't have to register as a sex offender for the rest of your lives. So they would plead guilty to the lesser offense, pay a fine, and get out of there as the best they could. And my, my friends who had gotten arrested even admitted that they were gay. They said, but if we were going to be doing anything lewd, as the law claimed, we would do it in our home. We live together. They still lost. And they ended up pleading guilty to the lesser charge. So this was the environment that you were in. You started the phone tree. And then what happened? The phone tree started working. And it took us to February 11th, 1967, to have the demonstration. We got a demonstration together. There was a bar in Hollywood that was the only place that would allow us to meet, but we had to meet while they were closed. Was the phone tree saying, okay, we're going to have a meeting, we're trying to get people together? Did you know what you were going to do? with? No, we got together in order to discuss what we would do. Because you have to understand, we were terrified because if we were exposed and in the newspapers or anything, we would lose our jobs, we would lose our income, we would lose our homes, and our families would alienate us because of embarrassment. Because a lot of people came from other places to be anonymous. That's why the big cities attracted the gay people. Mother Brian told me in 1890, the police didn't want to put you in jail, but they would come and beat you up with their billy clubs if they knew you were gay every day until you moved out of their city. Get you out of here, anywhere else but here. So how many people showed up to just discuss what was going to happen? About 30, 35 people. And it was brought up that three months earlier on the Sunset Strip, there had been an anti-war demonstration and the people were attacked by the sheriff's department and they were beat so bad. And these are heterosexuals just protesting the war. Our rights that are given to us by our constitution, they got beat up for airing those rights. So you can imagine how we felt. They wouldn't give a darn if we really got injured. Given the tone of the times that you're describing, that's- That's a lot, yeah. 
that wasn't what showed up at the demonstration. At the demonstration, there were 500 to 600 gay men and women and people who supported them demonstrating out there. The largest demonstration for gay rights in the world and the first large demonstration. There was the Manishan Society. They fought the post office and won their case because the post office wouldn't deliver a brown manila envelope with their club-related things. It was anything but lewd. Yeah. Just in the planning of this, were people saying, oh, gosh, no, we shouldn't do that. We should. I mean, mean, what was the nature of the discussion? There were people there at the meeting who were saying, if we just keep quiet, they'll leave us alone. If we don't make problems for them, they'll leave us alone. Well, we practiced that for years, and that didn't do us any damn good. Some left because they didn't agree with it. And those of us who were still there, we knew we had to do something. Silent no more. So what did you do? We organized the demonstration because that's the way to get our words out. And that's the way to let our neighbors and our community in Silver Lake know that we are just people. This is Abby Dees, and I'm talking with Alexei Romanov about the Black Cat Tavern protest for gay rights in 1967 two years before the Stonewall Inn riots. That was part one of Abby's three-part interview with Alexei Romanov, veteran of the Black Cat protest. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this quick break. Starving artist Beaufort Delaney, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Beaufort Delaney, a premier African-American painter, was underappreciated during his life because of racism and homophobia. Born in 1901 in Tennessee, his mother was born into slavery. With an early interest in art, Delaney learned the essentials of classical technique in Boston. He moved to New York City in 1929 at the height of the Harlem Renaissance. Although he became part of a circle of black gay friends, he was deeply introverted. Delaney's pastel portraits showed his fascination with the play of light and a love for the color yellow. With exhibits in Harlem, he worked as a bellhop to scrape by. At times, he lacked food and shelter. Today, his portrayals of Marian Anderson, Duke Ellington, and James Baldwin are considered classics. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Christopher Murphy. Hello, I'm Ann Stockwell, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And now part two of Abby D's three-part interview with Alexei Romanov. When the police raided the Black Cat Tavern and the New Faces Bar on New Year's Eve 1966, it was nothing new to the gay community in Silver Lake, California. But what was new was how that community decided to respond in a large, organized public protest on February 11, 1967. One of those organizers was Alexei Romanov, who spoke with me 50 years later about that historic day. So how did you get from 30, 35 people meeting in a closed bar in Hollywood to five, 600 people protesting? Word of mouth, 
People being sick and tired of being sick and tired of being sick and tired of being treated the way they were being treated. So what did you decide on? Did you say we're going to stand outside with signs? First of all, you couldn't stand in one place. You have to move. Otherwise, you can be arrested for loitering. We had people who were giving us information about the legality of different things. We produced flyers that we passed out besides the signs. We didn't chant much. We did a little. But we mainly paraded around, and any one of our flyers that were handed out, if we saw it was dropped, we ran over and picked it up. What did the flyers say, do you recall? It told why we were there, the story. And February 11th? We showed up. I had already moved to Santa Monica at that time. So coming in with a group of my friends in the car, and I think there was two or three cars, so we were strangely quiet, very quiet. We were actually intimidated because we didn't know what was going to happen. You know, we didn't know. I'm sure the black activists felt the same thing in Selma and in other places. And you had been seeing this very much in the media at the time. Yes, absolutely. Dogs, police batons, things like that. There wasn't like fluttery or anything. The gravity of it seemed to be clear. Yeah, because that out of that did come that we no longer were starting to say, just leave us alone. Just let us live our own lives. We won't bother you. What we were saying then, our Constitution guarantees us the right to be free people. And that's the first time that was ever said and was never said before that. Now, the Manishan Society did say that we had the right to keep our jobs in the government because that was during the McCarthy era. Yeah. But if you were in the Manishan Society, when you went to demonstrate, you had to wear a suit. And if you were a lesbian, you had to wear a dress or a skirt. Did you prepare yourself? Did you have kind of a, a strategy for things getting heated? Some of us had some training with the anti-war demonstrations about drop, cover your head, cover your vital areas, roll up into kind of a ball to protect yourself. Now, at that demonstration, there were supposed to be other demonstrations that we had arranged. We contacted other groups. We contacted a Latino group. We contacted a black group. We contacted the anti-war demonstrations. This is before the demonstration. On that same day, we had the thought that if we could have a number of demonstrations going on in the city that the police would be so pulled apart that they couldn't do that much damage to any one of us because their forces were so distributed out. Did they respond positively? Then? They did. They were supposed to have it. But the Latino and the black community didn't come off that day. But the anti-war group had a demonstration way larger than us over on Sunset Boulevard on the exact same day on that strip. And I think they had about uh, 3,000. I want to pause for a moment because you reached out to leaders of these various resistance movements. And 
even though some of them didn't actually organize protests that day, it sounds like they were receptive to what you were doing. No, they were divisive in their own community. It didn't involve us. Mm -hmm. We reached out to leaders, and there were those who were saying, we don't want to be connected with those people. And evidently, either they couldn't get enough people to back what they were doing, or they just didn't want to do it. But they were going to. We had a promise they would do it, and they didn't come through. And that's not a bad thing, and it's not a good thing. It's the fear. It's a human situation. The stakes were so high for everybody. And you got to understand, we had a mental illness in those days, and we could be committed by our own families. They could just not like what we were doing, and they could put us in a sanitarium for many, many years. So on that day, you've scheduled this. Presumably, you used the phone tree system again to get people to come out. Yeah. The day happens. Everybody's gotten word. Did everyone just show up and pick up a sign and start walking around? What happened? People were excited. They were fearful because the first time they're really being heard. Was there news there? The only people who covered that demonstration and most of the pictures from that demonstration that you see were done by the free press. They were the only ones that showed up. Did you let the media know ahead of time? Oh, they knew very well what was going to happen. Very well. They didn't want to cover it. Why do you think that they didn't want to cover it? Probably for the same thing that racism happens. If you're considered the lowest of the low, why should we cover it? How long did it last? To the evening. And how were the police? Very orderly, because they were being photographed. And we see the importance of that to this year. Yes, yes. Witnessing abuses of power is a powerful force to stop abuses of power. Yes, yeah. I'm all in favor of cameras. Were there just neighborhood peoples, local businesses involved, watching? What kind of feedback did you get in the moment? Some people were annoyed. They couldn't walk down the street. It was so crowded. We had to keep moving. There was a laundromat next to the black cat that was in there, and there was a parking lot alongside that. And the line went around and around and down the streets, up the streets, all around. When I was with the police chief downtown, I pointed to the pictures because Roots of Equality had large blow-ups of the pictures of people carrying the signs. And I said, do you see anybody smiling? Any one of them? Not one because they were scared. But silence no more. So who was there? Who were the protesters? What kinds of people? People like me, everyday people, going to common jobs, doing common work, doing important work. Men, women? Men, women, like I said, 500 to 600 gay men, gay women, lesbians, and those who support us. So you had allies? Sure we did even some people from the other communities. And were there people of color, different ages? There were some. There wasn't that much then. I could see the risks would be even higher. Why do you think we don't hear much about this? Other things that were happening around the time was the next year, the patch on PCH had a protest. 
1966 in San Francisco, Compton's Cafeteria, there was a protest. We tend to think everything started with Stonewall, but it didn't. Why do you think we don't know about this? The difference was there were demonstrations, and somehow a riot makes more news. And Stonewall was a riot. It wasn't a peaceful, organized demonstration. Those people were fed up, they had taken enough, and they weren't going to take any more. And it took some very brave, as we used to call them, which was derogatory in a way, drag queens. It took them to say, we're not going to take this anymore. And that was the riot that happened then. They turned the tables. It was an important thing. I never want to lessen the importance of Stonewall. But all of these steps, including the Manishan Society, are important because they were all footholds. You know, today they talk about on your shoulders. Well, it's in your steps. Do you think that this kind of buildup of we're not going to take it anymore, we're sick and tired of being sick and tired, like you said, that started happening around this time. Do you think that it was sort of spurred on by what was also happening around the anti-war movement and the civil rights movement? Absolutely, because everybody was, they were realizing that somehow the laws were illegitimate, that they weren't right from a moral standpoint. Laws are laws that states and the government makes, but they're not always right, like, like a woman's right to choose. It's her right to choose. You know, you can hate me all you want, but it stops at the edge of my nose. That's civil rights in a nutshell. Darn right. After the protests, what did you think you'd accomplish? I mean, were you aware how big this was? I didn't realize how big this was. What I did realize and was hoping for that we would accomplish something, that it wasn't just done and nothing came out of it, because that had happened before. I think afterwards, yes. When you were protesting that night, were you thinking of Mother Brian? Yes. And uh, the funny part was I wasn't thinking about Mother Brian in the terms you would be proud of me. I was thinking that I'm so proud to have met you in my teen years to shape my life. I mean, that was the most important person in my life. Usually your parents are the most important person. Well, I had a single mother. Mother Bryant was my adopted father. I just loved that man because he made so much sense. And you know, I'm 80 years old now. And he seemed so old to me back then, where he doesn't seem that old to me now, because there's only six years difference between him and me at that time and now. And But there were people like that in our community. There were people who reached out to us kids. And I think there are people who do that now. Three years ago, I was on the Founders Float at CSW, the Pride Parade. And after that, I got to stand up on the main stage and I looked down and there had to be a thousand young faces looking back up at me. The first thing I said to them when I was speaking to them was, hello, family. Because you know, we have our family of blood, but we have our family of choice. 
And sometimes our family of choice are more gratifying to our needs. And I looked at all of these young people and I thought to myself, what can I say? Well, first of all, I let them know I care about them. Second of all, I told them, nobody has ever given us anything we haven't had to fight for. And if you don't use it, you lose it. And seeing those kids and those people go crazy down there, clapping and yelling, I realized I had touched maybe a thousand people that afternoon. And I'm proud of that. This is Abby Dees, and I'm talking with Alexei Romanov about the Black Cat Tavern protest for gay rights in 1967, two years before the Stonewall Inn riots. One of the things that struck me about these first two segments of Abby's interview was the idea of leaving the world a better place than we find it, and the previous generation taking care of the next, especially seen through Mother Bryant. This is really important for all of us, and I see this a lot in the transgender community. We're really starting to look out for the kids who are trying to make their way through a legislative battlefield right now and kind of feeling the walls closing in on them, and that can be very difficult to deal with For so many people still stuck trying to be who they want to be and live their authentic life, that holds true for the entire LGBTQ plus community. I'm just amazed at how Alexei can take us right back to that moment in 1967. And you can still hear the excitement in his voice as if he's there in that moment all over again. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this quick break. Beaufort Delaney's Struggle, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. While Beaufort Delaney's portrait started getting noticed during the Harlem Renaissance, he faced the realities of the Great Depression. A frequent subject of his work was the famous author James Baldwin, who for the first time found faith that a black man could be an artist. In 1953, Delaney left for Europe. He settled in France, as had Baldwin, and his work shifted toward pure abstraction. In 1960, Delaney suffered his first mental breakdown. Baldwin asserted that Delaney's difficulties as a gay man, a black man, and an artist simply overwhelmed him. In 1979, Delaney died, alone and impoverished in a Paris mental hospital. Yet today, he is celebrated as a major modernist painter and his works exhibited at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Christopher Murphy. Hi, I'm David Sedaris, advising you to listen to the longest-running homosexual radio program in Southern California. I am, are you? I am, are you? I am, are you? Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I'm Chloe Corcoran. And now the conclusion of Abby D's conversation with Alexei Romanov, the last known survivor of the Black Cat protest that took place on February 11th, 1967, in Los Angeles. The first thing you notice when you meet Alexei Romanov are his piercing light blue eyes, only fitting for a man who's dedicated his life to being a witness in the fight for human equality from helping organize the first mass LGBT rights protest at the Black Cat Tavern in 1967, to fighting California's Proposition 8. Alexei has been there. 
Now, lest you think that the idea of a vibrant LGBT community began with protests and parades, Alexi will tell you otherwise. Born in 1936, he grew up in New York, but after losing his lover to cancer, he decided it was time for a change. And, on the suggestion of a friend, he began his new life in a gay-friendly Los Angeles neighborhood called Silver Lake. He says, yeah, there's a very large gay community there, and it's comfortable living, and the prices are not exceptionally high. It was reasonable. I mean, $85 a month was a, your rent at those days, sometimes 60 We made communities. West Hollywood was not a city yet. It was Boys Town at that time. That's how it was referred to. There were restaurants around the carriage trade over on Melrose. Oh, Palamo's uh, Grill. That was right next to the Hollywood Freeway, Hollywood Boulevard. And those were gay places, and they usually were late at night. How did you find out about these places? Would you just walk around? Or was it just a look in the eye? Or? It was a look in the Well, I had moved from the place up in the hill over to Griffith Park Boulevard. We just moved in, and I'm walking down the street, I believe from Sunset Boulevard over to where I was living, and all of a sudden a little sports car, a powder blue T-Bird, one of the little ones with the removable top and all of that, pulls up along there, and it was a very nice-looking young man there. And what I found out after talking to him, he was Mr. California in the the weightlifting tradition and so on and so forth. And he stopped and he said, are you looking for some place? I looked at him and I said, I think I found it. <laughs> and he says, you look like you're a little lost. I said, well, I'm new, new in California and I'm new in Silver Lake and I'm trying to get my bearings where everything is. And he turns around and he says, why don't I meet you this weekend? I'll give you my phone number and I'll take you around and show you some of the places. And that got me started. So you were involved in the opening of New Faces. Opening. I worked at the High Spot, which is on Hyperion Boulevard. Do you know where Casita del Campo is? Mm-hmm. Well, it was across the street from that, a little up the block. And there was a gay veterinarian there, and his lover, as we used to call him, because there were no husbands, his lover ran the front office, and he was the veterinarian in the back. And we knew we could go to him. We knew the stores. We knew people where we would shop and see, it's a community. So the New Faces before was a bar called Patty's Bar. Patty's Pub. Was it a gay bar? No, it was a completely straight bar. That's why we had to end up closing for 90 days. And they would be knocking at the door and we would tell them, you're welcome to come back, but it's under new management and new clientele, and you may not be particularly happy with the clientele that's here. Did they ask follow-up questions? Some did. Others went, oh, and walked away, you know. So did you just use word of mouth? You didn't have to do advertisement. It just went through the community. Oh, I found this new place. Uh, We had shuffleboard table there, and we had a pool table on one end, and then we had a regular bar. We had a jukebox, there were no DJs in those days, and it was a steady clientele of people we knew. We called our patrons by name when they came in. They knew our name, at least 90% of them. Who 
was your clientele? The same people that were at the protest, just everyday people? Everyday people. Now, there were distinctive different types of gays. There was the motorcycle leather community. Not quite as much as came later in the 70s, but there was uh, what they would call dance bars. There would be places like that. But it was a little segmented. There was a country western Oil Can Harry's on Ventura Boulevard had been there, still is open, had been there for ages. When I got here, they were open. I think they've been open 60 years or something like that. There was a whole lot of things on La Cienega Boulevard. Did you all know one another? Absolutely. We knew that the carriage trade was a gay place, but you could go there and get a really nice dinner. You know, another interesting thing, there was a place out in uh, Laurel Canyon, and it was called the Canyon Club, which allowed same-sex dancing. And it was a little resort that you didn't stay there, but it it had a huge dance floor. And it was a membership only. You bought a membership. There was a pool there. It was a restaurant earlier in the evening, and then it turned into a, a bar and dance floor. And that was men and women. So women always were able to dance together, but men weren't allowed to dance together. So it had a jukebox at one end of the floor, and it had another jukebox at the other end of the floor. And you knew that if it was couples dancing of two men and two women, you know, with each other, if that jukebox went off and that one went on, you knew to switch partners. So we all would switch partners. So I'd be dancing with a lesbian, and the lesbian would be dancing with another gay man. That told them that the either the ABC board or the sheriff's department, because that was county, had come into the place to survey what's going on. So they would come in and we're just dancing in couples, man and woman. And then the minute they left, that other jukebox went on and we were switching there. Now, there was a bar in New York that had a dance floor. So what would happen was there would be a doorman. There was a, a television hanging up on the corner of the room Now, if that TV went on and the jukebox went off, you knew to stop dancing. That meant the doorman was signaling you that the police or undercover police officers were coming into the bar. So we're all standing there. But the thing is, in those days, TVs needed to warm up. So it was nothing but lines. And here's a whole dance floors full of people looking up at this TV with nothing but vertical and horizontal lines running down on it. So the cops who had come in would look, and they'd look up, and they'd shake their heads, and they'd leave. Did you have a system? Our jukebox would blink on and off if somebody came in suspicious, you know. See, that's what our community was. And it makes me wonder, as you're talking, about this idea that I've heard so much before the time that I came out, that until HIV, gay men and women lived very separate lives. There wasn't a lot of interaction. And yet I hear the stories like yours. No, that's not really true. It wasn't huge. But a lot of us had lesbian, you know, we had to go to things, too. We were in it together. Yeah, and we understood each other. And lesbians, even at that time, it wasn't until standing up women's lib and that sort of thing that we started calling ourselves, there was gay girls and gay boys prior to that. That was the terminology we used. And, you know, the lingo we had was so that we could sit in the restaurant and talk to each other 
and nobody knew what we were talking about. We would be in the restaurant and say a very good looking young man would come in, would say, hmm, look at that box or look at that basket, <laughs> which meant the butt or the, <laughs> the front and or, or isn't she gay, <laughs> you know? The biggest mistake we made was saying he's gay, she's gay, he's straight, she's straight. Straight gave the connotation that there was something wrong with being gay. And that might have been the psyche at that time. Because I know straight also meant that you were straight-laced. Yeah, but that was different than that. Straight meant you weren't kinky, you weren't bent. We also had a term kai-kai at the time, which didn't live through. And kai-kai meant you were bisexual. Well, I love gay lingo. The only one I object to is the fact that the heterosexual community was called he's straight. And that gave a feeling that somehow being gay or lesbian wasn't right. Can you quickly give me a highlight reel of some of your accomplishments as an activist? I started an organization called Gay Pride West, Santa Monica Bay Coalition for Human Rights to fight the Briggs Initiative and Anita Bryan. The wonderful thing about the Anita Bryan thing was that just that year, Nielsen, the people that do the surveying of TV programs and things, I was living in Santa Monica with a partner, and they wanted a two-male household at that time. They came in, they put the PBX or whatever it is there attached to my television. So every time Anita Bryant came on with one of her commercials, I changed the channel. They said I represented four million people. And we started to boycott the Orange Juice Commission, the Florida Orange Juice. Not all orange juice, Florida Orange Juice. What else? HIV? Yeah, that. I also worked as a man in white at the quilt. Mm -hmm. That meant I held a box of Kleenex. And I went over, if I saw a family member looking at the quilt of their person, and they looked distressed, I didn't impose, but I walked up and I would give them a hug, and I would tell them, it's okay, I understand that I've lost somebody too. I appeared, spoke, straight groups, gay groups, mixed groups. During Proposition 8, I was above the 210 freeway up here on Lake Avenue, and I had a big banner. A black man walked up to me and he looked at it. He says, give me one reason why I should vote against Proposition 8. And I stopped and I thought for a moment, and I says, because 40-something years ago, I marched for your rights, and it's 40-something years later, don't you think I ought to have all of my human rights? And he stopped for a minute and he looked at me. He says, you have my vote against Proposition 8. And he says, and anybody I can talk to, we're all the same. I've had a great deal of love in my life, and I've loved a great deal in my life, and sincere love. And I want to know people who are younger or even my age that there's still more to life until you take your last breath. Don't give up. Don't stop. Make sure things end up equal to everything else in the world. When one person in the world doesn't have all of their rights, whatever country they're in, all of us don't have all of our rights. Alexi, what are you doing now? 
telling my story so that somebody else can be a witness. Because when I'm no longer here to tell my story, I want it to go on, and not because of me, because of what has to be done. There's so much left to do on this earth, and we have a good planet. We're worried more about going to another planet than we are to saving this one. But I want to continue doing what I've done throughout my life. I want to be an activist. I want to tell the story because I have a saying, if I'm a witness to something and I tell you, then you become a witness to that. What I'm getting from talking to you is this idea that activism does not always mean that you're down marching in a parade and waving a flag or a sign. It's showing up. And younger people, if you hear this, show up. Show up. Show up. And Alexi means it. He's been to every single Los Angeles Pride celebration since it began in 1970. Look for him there next time you go. Alexi Romanov lives with his husband David Farah in Pasadena, overlooking Los Angeles, the city he has loved and fought for since the day he first arrived in 1957. This is Abby Dees. For IMRU Radio. There's something happening here But what it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down Alexi's a real fixture in our community. We're so fortunate to still have him with us. I'm so looking forward to seeing him again at uh, Gay Pride in June. There's still a few minutes left, enough time for a last word. And tonight, that's an audio essay from Peter Dell. Everyone thought that Jamie Osich was gay. Jamie was effeminate naturally, something about the way he laughed, all high and girly, or the way he moved across a room like he was floating. All I know is that I hung around Jamie Osich because I always secretly hoped he would tell me he liked boys, because I would have told him then that I liked boys too. So we were in the library finishing up a project for some history class or English class or something. We finished early and we were both bored. I looked over at his Spanish homework. He had that big, loopy, very neat handwriting that only girls had, all soft and flowery and feminine. The only way it could have been any more queenie is if he had used little hearts to dot his eyes. You write like a girl, I told him. Shut up, he said. Let's go check it out, I said. What? he asked, confused. Let's go see. There's got to be a book in here about handwriting. We hunted the card catalog. Under the handwriting analysis subject cards, we came across several titles, all in the same Dewey Decimal neighborhood. I handed a book to Jamie and told him to find a sample of what his handwriting looked like while I searched another book. Here, I said, you do your B's like that. See there on your homework. Your B there and there and there. And it says often associated with artists and dancers. I guess that is my B, he said. I gloated. Then I saw it. The quintessential Peter Dell letter the letter I had written differently from everyone else since I had first learned cursive. It was the lowercase Peter Del P, the one with the high first stroke so the letter had a cap on it. 
I damn near had a trademark on this P. And here it was in a handwriting analysis book. I was ecstatic. So ecstatic that I didn't read the caption. Jamie, look, this is my P. I always do my P's this way. This is crazy. I've never seen anyone else do their P's like this. He took the book. Then Jamie laughed. It was one of those deep belly laughs. I immediately knew I was in trouble. I guess that is your pee, Peter, Jamie said between chuckles. I spun the book around. The caption read, This example of the letter P is very common in men with homosexual tendencies. A gay P. A queer P. A faggot P. The English homework sitting on the table next to the book, my English homework, was littered with the gay P. Every word started with P now as I read my paper, one word with two P's in it. Each percussive principal consonant presumed that Peter was positively a pansy. I blushed a deep, angry red. That book, I stumbled, it, it's not, it's, it's old, that, it doesn't mean anything, it's all fake, I, I mean really. Jamie just laughed. How about this? Jamie finally managed as his chortling died down. Let's agree that you can't judge people on their handwriting. I don't have a girl's handwriting. There is no such thing. Just like you don't have a gay man's handwriting. Agreed? I nodded my head furiously in agreement. The next day, I turned in my English assignment. The lowercase cursive P's on the paper I turned in were new to me, a foreign stroke with my pen generic little line with a half circle attached. To this day, my hand doesn't remember how to make that first P, that beautiful little twist of my wrist, which sent me apart from Jamie Osich. And sometimes I want my P back, my charming, unique P, which was once very common in this man with homosexual tendencies.
Well, that's the end of our show. We know you have choices on your radio dial and appreciate your spending time with us. Our thanks also to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. If you are a web designer, social media expert, or just interested in LGBTQI community affairs and would like to volunteer with IMRU, email volunteer at imruradio.org. And a little reminder, you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. You can also listen to our podcast, where we'll start presenting longer interviews and content too bodacious to broadcast. And if you want to see us, be sure to check out our promos and IMRU Radio podcast on YouTube. Good, Good night. night.